Hey guys, welcome to the True Crime Couple, episode 52. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So, of course, at the top of the show, like we always do, we want to thank everybody, our listeners, our Patreons, and everyone who left us reviews. It was another great two weeks. Absolutely. Really exciting. Yeah. So, without any further ado, let's get started with the show. Let's do it. Every town has a place that teenagers go. If you can close your eyes, letting the nostalgia take over, and think about it, it still seems like the coolest place you'll ever be. It was a place for fun and firsts. For me, it was a place called Terrace Pond. It was a 10-mile uphill hike through the mountains of North Jersey. We'd put on our bathing suits and dry coolers of beer we'd convince someone to take from their parents, and when we got to the top, it was all worth it. There was a deep saltwater lake. The water was beautiful and calm, and we'd jump in off rocks, and the bravest of us would swim across the lake to the cliffs, and we'd climb up and take the jump, being sure to jump slightly to the right to avoid the tree limb that had fallen in. The last time I went to Terrace Pond, it was 2008, and I was a senior in high school, about to leave for college. In the same year, during that same summer, kids who were the same age I was, were doing the same thing 1,000 miles away in Niagara, Wisconsin. Only they would never come back from their teenage paradise. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows, If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Built in 1902 by the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad, the one-track, 357-foot Kingsford Rail Bridge travels over the Menonee River, connecting the state of Wisconsin to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. On the Michigan side lies the town of Kingsford, and on the Wisconsin side lies the town of Niagara. Below the bridge, the river gets wide and slow. For generations, people, especially teenagers, enjoyed the views, the water, and the isolation. Many went there to drink, hang out, and swing from the rope that hangs from the bridge's superstructure and fall into the dark, tranquil waters. And a group of teens were doing just that in Niagara and Kingston, on July 31st, 2008. In bathing suits and shorts, Tiffany Polson, 17, Anthony Spigarelli, 18, Katrina Coates, 17, and Derek Barnes, 18, strayed away from their friends at the bank of the river and swam across to the Wisconsin side. They wanted to jump off a large rock that hung over the river. Anthony and Derek, best friends, were in front, talking away, while Tiffany and Katrina followed closely behind. Suddenly, a man jumped out in front of them, pointing an assault rifle in front of their faces. The man was dressed completely in camouflage. They hadn't seen him. As the man advanced towards the teenagers, they turned to run. Tiffany and Katrina grasped hands. As they fled, the shots ran out. Anthony, an outgoing soccer player who had dreams of studying aeronautics and was headed to college in three weeks, was shot in the back of the head and died instantly. As his body hit the ground, it rolled down the hill towards the river until it was stopped by a small tree. While still holding the hand of her friend, Tiffany, a high school student who was just about to enter her senior year, 
was shot in the back of the head. She also died instantly. The man fired wildly as the other two teenagers were fleeing between the trees. As he was firing, he was distracted by sounds. Sounds he heard from the riverbank on the Michigan side. Among those on the shore were Brian Mort. Brian had dropped out of high school at 17. He wanted to open up auto shops with his brother, and he wanted to get a head start on earning the capital to do so. However, after a year of working, he realized that he was meant to be on a different path, and he went back to school, and he earned his high school diploma. In two short weeks, he was going to be the first member of his family to go to college. But Brian was seriously wounded that day as he was trying to flee. And as shots were raining down, other teenagers were running away, ducking for cover. One boy was able to hide behind the bridge, and he called 911 on his cell phone. The man stayed on the peak above the terrified, hiding children, and when sirens were heard in the distance, he faded away into the forest. As first responders arrived, a hundred law enforcement officers combed the dense forest around the bridge. No one knew the identity or precise location of the shooter. All they knew was that he had fired about two dozen rounds and killed three promising college-bound students. Police on the scene had needed to assess what they were dealing with. They had two dead victims, another wounded, and a dangerous man with a gun on the loose. Their first priority was the wounded boy. Brian Moore had been moved by boat to a ramp that would allow for an ambulance to pick him up. While they were doing this, the police had also formed a perimeter around the wooded area. The hundreds of officers from neighboring towns and the sheriff offices were positive that if anyone were to come out of those woods, they would have known about it. Residents of nearby houses were evacuated to spare more lives from being lost. When Brian Moore arrived at the hospital, his death was announced. There was nothing the doctors could have done to save his life. So now the death toll of the mass shooting was three. While some officers formed a perimeter, other officers searched the woods, and it wasn't until 8 p.m. that night that they were able to reach the bodies of Anthony and Tiffany. After that, it was all a waiting game. The officers in and around the woods didn't know how this would end. Would the shooter surrender or start another shootout? Could he possibly want this to end in suicide by cop? The officers would get their answer the next morning, when the shooter, whom they would identify as Scott Johnson, would walk out of the woods, rifle dismantled, and his arms up on the Wisconsin side of the riverbank. The shooter had surrendered, and they knew exactly who he was. They had been looking for him. Okay, let's take a break to talk about this episode's first sponsor, Best Fiends. Discover the world of Best Fiends and its cute characters in this fiendishly fun, free-to-download mobile puzzle game. I love playing this game. Currently, I'm on level 95, and I have collected 11 adorable buggy friends to help complete the puzzles and defeat the slugs at every level. At this point in the game, it is so fun to determine which bugs I need to complete each level, and the more I power them up, the easier it is to finish. This epic storyline will keep you engaged with thousands of hours of gameplay. It's easy to learn and difficult to master. It's the perfect casual game to play alone or with friends and family. Solve thousands of fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. You can download this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game on the Apple App Store or Google Play for free. Remember, that's friends without the R. Best fiends. Okay, let's get back to the show. So I know that was a super intense beginning of the show, and I 
left John speechless. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know what to say. It was just so good. I got totally fixated on every word <laughs> that Kay said. All I was thinking about was how crazy that was from it, start to like first sponsor. From start to first sponsor. <laughs> from yeah. start to. <laughs> you know what I mean. I well, know, it's yeah. not over yet. No, so I know. Not even close. It was just a funny way to say it. Yeah, it was weird. I don't know. You know that's so, how I am. I. This is definitely a crazy case, and I think that the fact that you have this peaceful, tranquil day in juxtaposition to what and how it's going to end, it's just so tragic because these kids, they really had such amazing futures, and they've already touched so many lives so beautifully, what we'll learn about them. And it's it's so sad that their lives were just so senselessly and tragically just stolen from them, really like the most exciting time of their lives. Yeah, I mean think about all the things that they're never going to be able to do because of this it's just it's just really sad that this would even happen you know it is sad and the fact that they're our age like and I was in high school at the same time I thought it was kind of I don't know just added something to it because I went to college at the same time and I couldn't imagine that being the end of my life because so much has happened after that and I think some of my best memories and best years were after that and are still to come you know what i mean so that was stolen from these these kids absolutely but i will say this i wish that i got to kind of do stuff like this i mean where i live there wasn't the ability to do that so i kind of feel like i missed that on that but hey maybe i'll take you to terrace pond one day Yeah, i'd like to see that i don't know how that 10 mile hike uphill like up the mountain would be for us now but back then it was it was rough Um, so could i get like a like a elevator up there that'd be cool escalator even well that was always really dangerous too and and sometimes these places that you know teens go to drink or they go to have fun they are often isolated because they do allow you to do the illegal things that teenagers do tend to do but that also adds to the danger of it if there is ever a tragic event so i remember when i would go there my parents would always be upset because it is up a mountain so if anything ever happened a helicopter would have to come in and get you And there were a few times that swimmers jumping from the cliffs, they did hit their heads. So a helicopter would have to come and get them out. And it is scary. And some people, I know a a girl had died up there. But we know when you're a kid, you're invincible. Right, of course. This is a little bit... I mean, we'll put up pictures, but it is kind of dangerous jumping from a rock into a river. The river isn't as deep as a lake is, so that's pretty scary. And the kids would also like rope into the river. It's not that deep. So it, there is a element of danger here as well. Besides, you know, these tragic shootings that sometimes take place. It's pretty scary. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, especially somebody that's like camouflaged, like Jumping out in the out woods. At you, I mean, that's crazy. Terrifying. Oh, hell yeah. I wouldn't know what to do. No, you wouldn't know. You would just, and that's, and the kids did, I think, what everyone would do. They just tried to turn and run away as quickly as they could. Yeah. They didn't try to engage. They just wanted to run. Right. So Scott Johnson is a pretty pathetic guy. And I don't really ever start off by saying that someone's horrible, but today I'm going to make an exception because this guy's a total jerk. So let's get into how we kind of came to that conclusion. And I don't mean just the shooting part. Like, he was a dick before this, so. Once a dick, always a dick. Very true. Scott Johnson grew up on what people from Michigan call the Upper Peninsula, or the UP. It's a heavily wooded, underpopulated, vast landmass that extends into the Great Lakes and connects to Wisconsin. Johnson believes that he was shortchanged when it came to his early life and his adult life. He grew up in an isolated town. His father left him 
and by his telling of the story, his stepfather was a violent drunk, who his mother was obsessed with. Johnson grew up with weapons. He later explained that it was the way of life in the Upper Peninsula. Kids just played with guns and knives, and from what I can see, hunting culture is pretty prevalent there, so I don't see that being really far from the truth. When he was nine, he got a single-shot 20-gauge and later a 30-30 rifle from his mother. Johnson graduated from high school in the top half of his class, and he joined the Army. He was stationed at Fort Polk in Louisiana. It was there, at a Baptist church, that he met his first wife, Teresa, a woman who was familiar with Army life, as her father was also in that branch of the military. The two married in 1991. Johnson was 21 years old at the time. Teresa says that at first, in the first year of marriage, everything was good. Once Johnson finished his time in the army, the couple moved to Shreveport. But slowly Johnson became more and more abusive and controlling. And in 1993, Johnson had threatened to kill Teresa when she was pregnant with their first child, a son. Five years later, when she was pregnant with their daughter, Johnson pushed her down the stairs because she had not sent the family Christmas cards out when he told her to do so. Wow, I mean, that really doesn't, um, I don't know, that's not something you do when you don't send out the Christmas cards. I yeah, mean, it doesn't, yeah, the crime doesn't and fit the punishment. The punishment. Are, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, you should never get punished. Like, you, you should never punish your spouse ever, you period. You push them down the stairs But you could either. just be like, uh, you should have sent out the cards. End of conversation. Or, I just forgot, it's okay, I'll do it in the morning. I don't know. First of all, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would send out Christmas cards. So that's the first shocker. Yeah, right? The second is that he's a total jerk. He's just an abuser, really. He's, he's an abuser. It seems like he likes Christmas, but he also likes he like, domestic he likes violence. It. Yeah, I think he likes it a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> but for Teresa, the final straw came in 1999. She had confronted Johnson about leaving their daughter unattended in the backyard. She was one year old. Johnson began screaming at her, and when the family cat walked within view of him, he grabbed the pet and threw it against the wall so hard that the animal was knocked unconscious. Teresa ran from the room to go get her daughter and leave the house. Her son was in someone else's care at the time, and when she walked back into the house from the backyard, Johnson was pointing a rifle at her chest while she was holding their daughter in her arms. When Teresa tells a story, she said that her best guess is that she went into shock because she doesn't remember what took place after that. All she remembers was her husband saying, look what you made me do. After that incident, Teresa picked up the children and moved to Ohio. There, her family convinced her to file for divorce and stay away from him. While Johnson was married to Teresa, he had made a living by holding down miscellaneous jobs, hospitals, hotels, convenience stores, and he even had a short stint in the National Guard. All of these things, although very different, have one thing in common. Scott Johnson leaving them because he claimed that his employers were unfair to him. That seems to be the trend of Scott Johnson's life. Everything is everyone else's fault. And Johnson had actually been an apprentice plumber when Teresa left him. And when the divorce took place, he left that job as well. And of course, Teresa was the one to blame for this. After Teresa left him, Johnson no longer saw his children and was trying as hard as he could to avoid his child support payments. Whenever Teresa would call to ask for payments, Johnson would scream at her and threaten her. And sometime in 2001, 
Johnson visited a gun and knife show where he purchased a 308 semi-automatic rifle, the one he would use on the river that day. He paid for that gun with a bad check. When reflecting back on this time, Johnson said he was drinking and smoking a lot, and he passed some bad checks and was depressed. He planned to leave the country and get away before anyone could catch him on the checks. But before he headed north to Canada, he was going to stop by his mother's house in Kingsford, Michigan. I think it's Everyone kind of knows someone that's similar to this guy where problems happen in their lives, but it's never their fault. It's always someone else's responsibility. Well, yeah. I mean, it's easy to throw, you know, throw blame away from you to someone else. I mean, I know many people like that in my life. I mean, just. Yeah. Everyone's got Everyone someone. has it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't, it might be you. So watch out. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. I also think it's great that Teresa was able to leave Johnson because it seemed like the abuse was only going to get worse and that he didn't have any limits. Like if he was willing to point a gun at her and potentially shoot her while she was holding their daughter, the signs point to the abuse eventually affecting the children physically. Oh, definitely. I mean, someone, someone could have been killed. I mean... And you're right. I give her credit for noticing that there was an issue, like, really early on. And then, you know, getting the courage and her things together in order to make the move to leave. Correct. So that's good. She did have a lot of support from her family, which always makes things a little bit easier to have a place to go. Oftentimes, women don't have somewhere to go. So that is one of the factors that makes them stay. Right. I think that Johnson is definitely showing signs that he is going to go off the deep end because he has this rage building and building up in him and we have some triggers happening. He's leaving a lot of jobs, of course, at no fault of his own, and his wife has just divorced him. So it seems like his solution is to run and that's what he's going to try and do, to go to Canada. But first he has to stop at his mother's house. You know, it's crazy too because he knows he's committing... Uh, illegal activities by writing out bad, bad checks. checks yeah you know um and especially with those gun shows too uh, it's very easy to buy weapons as well like for example let's just say I, i'm not saying that he this happened to him but let's just say he had charges on his record um whether it be domestic violence or anything like that oh yeah I mean, lot, i'm sure he did and he p- could possibly have had that but um when you go to a gun show it's not the same as if you were to go into a gun store where they do background checks and stuff. It's a lot different. I mean, they do, but the things... anonymity is there yeah, at the gun it, shows. Yeah, you can wiggle by some of the red tape there, and you can kind of get through to buy a gun. So it's interesting that he went to the gun show. I don't know if it was because he knew that or because he just wanted to go see the new guns and attachments and stuff. It's possible. Right. Maybe both. Well, that's where he got the rifle that he's going to use on July 31st, 2008. And I think that whether or not he got that that day, he would have definitely had something because he had a stockpile of weapons. He was, I guess what you would call like a weapons collector. He had many guns. This gun was registered under his name, but he also had a lot of knives. So he was a a collector of sorts. So I think going to these shows is probably something he did quite 
on the regular. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, people. a lot of people are into that, whether it be competitive shooting or anything. People like that stuff. Yeah. And not saying if that's something you do often, that's, like, bad. No, it's not just, at all. No. But it's just that that was, that was his jam. I mean, obviously, he was in the Army, so. Right. There was definitely a reason for him to be an enthusiast. Correct. So Johnson's visit to his mother's lasted for seven years. Wow. <laughs> he didn't really go to Canada. That's really uneventful. He's going to stay at his mother's house. Um, actually, he stays at his mother's house up until the day of the shootings. While he lived with his mother, he only worked at jobs that could pay him under the table. He did this so the government wouldn't be able to find him for child support payments. What a deadbeat. Yeah, that's kind of scummy. And he also did this so the police and the bank wouldn't be able to track him down for the bad checks. So, because he really is on the run for two separate reasons. He's refusing to pay child support and he passed some bad checks. So, federally, he's he's pretty, he's been investigated pretty heavily. I mean, yeah, I mean, those are not, uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. You can go to prison for that. I mean, yeah, if found guilty, yeah. yeah. Especially because it wasn't just that one check. There were several that he several. wrote. And... Yeah. So, of course, he only worked jobs that would pay him under the table so the government wouldn't be able to find him. But mostly Johnson just leached off of his mother and his brother, who were also his brother was also living with his mother at the time. So he really just borrowed money from them a lot. He spent most of his days finding ways to better live off of the grid and exercising. He was kind of a survivalist. Like his goal, I think his eventual goal was to be able to like kind of live off the land and not have to stay with his mother. Like his goal wasn't, hey, let me get a place of my own. It was, let me see how long I can survive in the woods type deal. Yeah. It's very uh, strange. Yeah. He was getting more and more eccentric as time went on. Yeah, almost like he was unraveling a little bit. Yes. Yeah. And his exercising was quite fanatic. He ran 8 to 10 miles a day and rode his bike 30 miles a day. He time The time alone, I mean... Well, when you don't work, you have all you the time all the in the time, world. I guess, yeah. He was also known to swim down at the bridge on occasion. Sometime in 2004, while he was completing his routine, he chose to prepare himself for living off of the grid. So he put some supplies down by the bridge, a sleeping bag camouflage clothing, a knife, and the rifle that he bought at the gun and knife show. So all around the woods, it's not just this specific place, but Johnson had these, like, I guess you can call them to-go bags in case, like, the end of the world, doomsday, whatever went down, or he was forced to live off the grid because the federal government was looking for him. Like, he had bags spread out throughout the woods in order to help him. So at one of the locations in 2004, that's where he puts one of his bags down by the train track river. Okay. The river, the train track, where the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, so let's take a break to hear from our second sponsor, StoryWorth. Everyone has a family member who always tells the best stories, like the one about the first neighborhood TV or the boat trip across the Atlantic or the hilarious college prank. Not only does StoryWorth preserve these narratives so future generations can enjoy them, but it also brings families together every week as they get to know each other a little bit better. StoryWorth was founded by someone who wanted his dad to record his amazing stories. 
The family enjoyed the process so much that they launched in April 2013. They did this so families around the world could share in the gift as well. So what is StoryWorth? StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for your loved ones to share their stories with weekly emailed story prompts, questions you've never thought to ask. At the end of the year, you'll get their stories bound in a beautiful hardcover book. Strengthen your family bonds and get to know your loved ones in a whole new way. Here's how it works. You purchase a subscription for someone you love, and each week, StoryWorth sends them an email with a question about their life. They simply reply to the email with their story. All stories are private and only shared with family that you choose. After a year, their stories will be bound into a beautiful keepsake book. We are so excited to use StoryWorth to preserve our family's memories and be able to pass along these stories to our children. We also cannot wait to hear the answers that John's father comes up with when we gift him the StoryWorth for Father's Day next weekend. The questions that prompt responses are amazing as well. From the funny, like, have you ever had car trouble at an inconvenient time? Or the serious... Like, how does your faith differ from that of your parents? StoryWorth has a great offer for true crime couple listeners. For $20 off, visit StoryWorth.com TCC when you subscribe. Again, that's StoryWorth.com TCC for $20 off. All right, let's get back to the episode. Now, this fact may shock you all, but... A man hiding from child support payments and bad checks who was also planning to live off the grid while also living with his mother at 38 doesn't really have a lot of contact with women. Shocker. (laughs) In fact, at that point, he had not been with a woman in six years. And it's that fact that I think is going to lead into the tragic events that take place not just the day of the mass shootings, but the day before that. The previous winter, Johnson met a young woman while he was shopping at the family dollar store in Kingsford. She lived near him, and the two hit it off in a completely platonic way. Johnson and the young woman would go on bike rides together and swim down at the train bridge, a place that she never had been before. During their months of friendship, Johnson even went to the woman's house just to talk and occasionally help her with her gardening. He was deep, deep in the friend zone. Later, the woman recalled that during that time, Johnson was completely respectful and he understood that she had issues of her own. She later told investigators that he knew that she didn't even like to be touched. On July 30th, 2008, Johnson asked her, as he had done many times before, if she wanted to go for a bike ride. Now keep in mind, this is the day before the events of the shooting. In a statement the woman gave to authorities, she said that they went for a bike ride together in the evening. We then walked into the woods in East Kingsford. They ended up crossing the train bridge into Wisconsin, and at that point, they were alone. Johnson told the woman that he wanted to show her something off the path. She followed, as she had no reason not to trust him. When they had come to a stop, Johnson reached underneath her tank top and shoved her to the ground. He pulled at her pants and underwear until they were both off. He then forced himself into her as she begged and pleaded with him to stop. She specifically remembers saying no and stop over and over again. He just wouldn't listen. When asked about this event, after his surrender, 
Johnson admits that sexual assault took place, but he denies that he was able to complete the act, as the woman was fighting too much, and that she was lying about that part. When asked why he would do this, Johnson replied that he didn't consider the young woman as attractive as some of the women he'd known when he had a job and money. So when she rejected him, it enraged him. And that's just, well, you hear that story happen a lot, that unfortunately you hear it happen a lot, that men, it's like an ego thing. When the rejection comes, it's how they tend to react. And he, for some reason, thinks he's some kind of hot commodity. But well, yeah, you know. He's essentially a hermit that rides his bike a lot. I mean, come on, though. That's what like, he he's does. a survivalist. He's cool as hell. I, I hear the sarcasm oozing off of you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just so disgusting and vile that somebody can do that and then be like, well, you know, wasn't all my fault, you know? Honestly, this guy is so disgusting. And that's why I start, started off, like, the beginning of it saying he's just a total dickhole because. He's done everything that makes people so... I mean, he's taken innocent lives of teenagers who had such a promising future. He is going to abuse his wife, put his children in danger, harm a cat. Let's not forget about the cat. Yeah, can't forget about the cat. That's bad. And then he's going to earn a woman's trust who I can tell from the interviews and police, police interviews and some statements that she's given that... She had issues of her own prior to meeting him, and she was a very closed-off person, but she let him in and kind of began began to trust him. It seemed that she had, I think, been a victim of sexual assault before, and then he he does this to her, um, further, like, building up walls and terror in this woman's life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all... And it's and- just like every horrible thing that a human being could do, this guy has done. Yeah, and we also can't forget the fact that he's a father that's completely absent and doesn't even support his children. He's devastating everyone's life that he touches. It's true. So sad. Now, although what the two said happened during the attack differs, they agree on what happened afterwards completely. Johnson begged and pleaded her not to call the police and report what happened to her. Well, then maybe he should have stopped when she was begging and pleading. True. That's That's what you're supposed to do there. Yeah. Um, he told her that she could do whatever she wanted to punish him, including beating him with a baseball bat. This is when Johnson's panic begins to set in. If the police looked into who he was, he was also going to get caught on the missing child support payments in Ohio, the bad checks in Louisiana, and now his sexual assault in Wisconsin. There's a lot there. It's a lot there. There really is. Yeah. And now he should probably friggin' run now. <laughs> yes. Because there's no way he's Please. not going to prison. Get out of this country. Yeah, really. We don't need you. <laughs> no. But neither does Canada. You know what? Go home. Yeah, go I'm hang sorry. out with Justin Bieber, you know? No, Justin Bieber doesn't live in Canada anymore. He's just oh. from Canada. All right. Well, whatever. <laughs> so- <laughs> what I'm saying. You know what, though? Really quickly, though? He shouldn't go anywhere. He's just like live in the. He should live in the woods, be alone. Yeah, but you know what? You can't even really do that. There's like. There's nowhere in this world right now where you can really go and just never be heard from again and just live your life. Well, I think... Unless you're on some island this that's This is a out very there. intensely wooded area. So I guess if he wanted to go deep in the woods, he could possibly do that. I think... I don't think he can physically. I think he needs people to kind of take him in as the victim. That's what he wants to do. Even though he does nothing but victimize everyone in his life, 
he wants everyone to see him as the victim and he wants people to wait on him hand and foot and do whatever he wants and that that's essentially what he does and the reason he stayed with his mother for so long is because she does allow him to do that and she does wait on him hand and foot and give him money whenever he wants and she's probably scared of him too i mean if if you think about it i mean she'll probably do anything you know give him money and food whatever shelter just to for him not to kind of be continue his bad behavior yeah well when the woman got a chance to leave she did she got out of the woods as fast as she could leaving johnson in the woods kind of having his panic attack and that is where johnson stayed for the entire night sitting in that same spot in the woods the woman did go to police and she reported what happened to her and the next morning johnson who finally wandered out of the woods he walked to his mother's house she told him that she was worried about him He didn't come home the night before, and the police had been around looking for him. She wanted to know what had happened. It looked like, just as he thought, everything was falling apart. Johnson told his mother that it was going to be okay, and that he was going to straighten it all out. It was just one big misunderstanding. He just needed to get something to eat first. So he asked her for $10 so he could go to Subway and get lunch. Johnson later admitted that while he ate at the restaurant, he was thinking... What should I do? Am I going to turn myself in? Or do I do that whole shoot them up thing? By late afternoon, he just began walking. He was headed towards the train bridge. He was walking towards the camp that he created on the Wisconsin side of the river. And this is when he saw teenagers at his spot below the train tracks. When he got there, he put on his camouflage shirt, pants, and hat. He took his sneakers off and he put on his boots. He put field bandages that he had in his pockets, and he assembled the semi-automatic rifle that he had stashed in a jagged rock outcropping. Once the weapon was assembled, Johnson found a spot that gave him a good view of all of the teenagers on the Michigan side of the riverbank. But then that's when he heard it. People were walking towards him, four teenagers. And then that's when the mass shooting took place. So it seems like... The sexual assault that he committed the day before was his trigger because now his life was fully unraveling and he he was like a wild animal backed into a corner and this was his response, unfortunately. Right, I mean, think about it. You already know you're going down with the ship. I mean, he's probably thinking, you know, let me, go. Let me just go out with a yeah. bang, literally. After his surrender, Johnson said that he wanted to, like you said, go out with a bang killing the teenagers and using them to attract police so he could commit suicide by cop however he said that he was using his power in the only way that he could by taking the lives of others and doing what he called balancing the scales he was so angry at his life and he thought the universe gave him a bad hand and that he was going to make it even by giving others a bad hand as well it's a really sick way, a negative way to look at life. Yeah, it it's disgusting. You know, that's how you get to that point, by thinking and acting that way. Right. It's terrible. Well, the community was deeply affected by the shootings at the river on that beautiful summer day. Everyone was confused by the senseless act, and they were full of grief and rage. And all of the rage that the community felt would be heard during the sentencing hearing of Scott Johnson in the spring of 2009. Johnson did not want to use the insanity defense as his attorney had advised him to do and in fact 
After an interview with the court-appointed psychologist, it was determined that he couldn't use that defense anyway because he did not lack the capacity to understand the wrongfulness of what he did, in the words of the psychiatrist. In March of 2009, his plea was changed from not guilty to nolo condare, which in the court system, this is when the defendant accepts conviction through a guilty plea, but they're not admitting guilt. Okay. And before the judge would impose the sentence, the victim's families would be able to speak. And Johnson was expected to be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, which was the most severe penalty the state of Wisconsin had to offer. However, that was not enough for the families of the victims. In a charge led by Brian Mort's family, a petition was sent around the community and it had the full support of their congressman. This petition asked for the federal prosecution of Scott Johnson. Under a federal law passed after 9-11, acts of violence on railroad property can be prosecuted as acts of terrorism, which sentences can include the death penalty. So even though the state doesn't require the death penalty, if this is tried federally, it does carry a death sentence. The Daily News covered the memorial that the Mortz family had for him, on his 20th birthday before the sentencing. In an interview, which was held at the gravesite of his son, who would have been 20 years old, Mort said that he wanted Johnson to be sentenced to death. The Bible says an eye for an eye. I mean, that is someone's son. Yeah. And, I mean, he lost his son, so it's one of those really weird, bizarre kind of no, lines in the sand. But you understand right. the anger. I mean... You do. The spring of 2009 from the summer of 2008, it, a full year hasn't even passed. So he's angry. I mean, it's, yeah. it's senseless. You really can't make sense of something like this that took place. And it's where the Mort family was at. Okay, so let's take a break to hear from our final sponsor of the show, Wix.com. Are you looking to start a website for your business, hobby, family, or personal use? The most simple yet sophisticated looking website design platform is Wix.com. I've been using Wix for my educational websites since I started teaching six years ago, and I swear it gets better and better every year. So join me and over 140 million people who use Wix for their website design. You can start and publish for free and choose from over 500 templates or start from scratch. Changing, customizing, and adding anything you want by adding your own text, images, and videos. If you choose to use Wix, you will gain access to the tools you need to create the website you want. You'll get unlimited storage, a custom domain, email addresses for your businesses, email marketing tools, and premium apps, and a dedicated support team. And if what you want is a serverless, hassle-free coding, Wix code is for you. This will allow you access to website creation without limits and the ability to build your own advanced web applications and robust websites. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off. Again, that's Wix.com slash podcast. All right, let's get back to the show. So at the sentencing hearing, the judge made sure to tell the packed courtroom that no outbursts would be tolerated. At that point, tensions and emotions were especially high because days before the sentencing, Johnson had given an interview with a member of the Associated Press. 
In that interview, Johnson said that he was not upset about the deaths of the three teenagers. In fact, he said that being upset about their deaths was like being upset over spilled milk. And on top of the interview, police reports and interview records were released. And they also showed how very little Johnson cared about the devastation he caused. Just goes to show you from the beginning, this guy has been nothing but a terror yeah, and he, a cancer. Zero remorse whatsoever. He is cancer. There's, there's no other way to describe it. You can't just destroy someone's life and not even feel just a slight bit of remorse. No. He's this a piece a, of crap. This is an example of someone who needs to be completely removed from society. It's true. It really is. The statements from the families were emotionally charged and honest. Tiffany Polson's uncle called Johnson a useless piece of garbage. And Tony's father said that he was happy Johnson would finally be able to achieve something in his life when his cellmate forces him to bend over. Wow. Yeah, it was a really great testimony. Oh. <laughs> he made reference to the fact that Johnson was training to be a plumber and something about laying pipe in prison, if you can imagine. Well, I, I, I like him, it though. Was, That's kind of creative. Yes. Very, it, yeah. very. When Tony's mother took the stand, she used her time to memorialize her son. And the only thing that she said to Johnson was that God only forgives the remorseful. I've never hated anybody, she said. I'm a people lover. I get along with everybody. But I hate him. I could kill him. Scott Johnson read a prepared speech. At the start, he said that the points he would make were based on a maxim that he devised when he was 12. So he's basically reading his manifesto. The truth of the matter at hand is that truth doesn't count anymore. It is the quality of the lie that endures, he said. And he had a lot of complaints to make about the police interrogation quotes being taken out of context or psychologists being biased or the press getting the facts wrong. He especially didn't like the fact that the press had said he had planned the shooting in advance. He reiterated his belief that no purpose would be served by saying he was sorry for what he had done. He said, if I show remorse now, people are going to say that I'm lying and that I'm faking and I'm not a liar and I'm not a faker. He said the only thing that he regretted was the fact that he lived amongst liars, the gullible, the arrogant, and the brainwashed. And for most of the speech, the audience was okay. And they kind of just listened to him because obviously this man is just sick in the head. You know, you could like tell. But when Johnson implied that the money that was collected as donations to the victims' families for funeral expenses exceeded the cost of the funerals, the courtroom erupted and everyone started screaming. Like, they held it in for so long, but then when he said that, then everyone just completely lost it. And that's when Brian Mort's mother stood up and before the judge could even yell, she walked out. The judge got order in the court, but a from what the court reporters say, that you can hear her screaming in the hallway while, like, the case is still going on. And when order was restored again, Johnson was allowed to finish his statement. After that, the only thing that he said was he quoted two verses from Louis Armstrong's song, What a Wonderful World. I bet you didn't expect that. No, I didn't expect that at all. Insane. So he's basically stating his 12-year-old manifesto, which makes absolutely zero sense. And then he's going to say that the families collected more money than the funeral costs and that they should have to give it back. And then he 
quoted lines from What a Wonderful World. To be honest with you, I, I think... That's so yeah. bizarre. If I was the judge, I think once I restored order in the courtroom, I probably would have just been like, all right, get the fuck... Get, get off of the stand right now. Like, I'm not letting you finish... Letting you continue. ...what you want to say because you're a disgrace to, every, to fucking mankind. Well, I, the judge has to be careful here because he definitely doesn't want anything to come up in appeals. So yeah. I think it's also better to let this man dig his own grave and he won't be able to bring it back on appeals. Yeah, no, I understand. You're right. So when it comes to the sentencing, the judge told Johnson that he believed the families of the victims had him pegged perfectly. Johnson had even brought suffering onto his own family. Johnson's ex-wife testified that his daughter, who's now 12, was terrified he was going to escape from prison and kill them now. The judge said, if ever there was a constellation of criminal activities that called for maximum consecutive sentences, it would be this case. The judge sentenced him for the murders and sexual assault to three life sentences without the possibility of parole to be served consecutively. In addition, he was sentenced to 295 years in prison. Good. Yeah. And when told what the sentence was, Brian Mort's mother said it's a beginning they definitely want him to be tried federally but as of 2019 he hasn't been tried federally they've stuck with the sentence that the judge gave to him in 2009 but other news stories have reached out to him and he still maintains that he doesn't feel an ounce of remorse yeah and for i i guess i can call him a tough proud man i guess he's never gonna admit well i wouldn't call him tough i take that back i wouldn't call somebody like him tough i mean he's a piece of shit but someone that's prideful like him yeah he's never going to admit that he did anything wrong well i don't think he ever takes responsibility for anything that he does it's obviously from his his past we've seen that he everything is everyone else's fault nothing is ever his own fault that's true and I think in this case, as in a lot of mass shooting cases, there's mental illness in somebody that goes either unrecognized or untreated that if it was probably could have prevented a lot of tragedies that took place those two days. You know what I mean? I agree. So we just want to, oh, we have to do our... Unsung Heroes? Yes. All right. What's yours? Oof. Hmm. My Unsung Hero... I think my unsung hero might just be one of the dads that made the plumbing joke. Anthony Spigarelli's Hell yeah. Because you know yes. what? He is a Good. very witty man. I like it. Because you know what? What else better way to put it? Like Yeah, and, and I hope that Johnson is not having a good time in prison. I agree with Spigarelli. Yes, laying pipe. Yes. <laughs> very clever. Yeah, I like it. Very good. My unsung hero, Audacity Recovery System, because we... <laughs> Halfway through this recording, we realized it stopped recording. Yeah, we got screwed up a little bit. So (laughs) there might be like a little part in the audio when it's like, oh, what? They just already said that. But it's because that's where the audio cut out. Yeah, so we're sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Computer decided just to not want to work. So those are our two unsung heroes. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) There's just some things that we wanted to talk about, too, with our audience. First, I wanted to say we I completely forgot to say it. In the second part of the Larry Ray two-parter that we did, this story has kind of taken on um, a life of its own. And Mark Wahlberg, as well as 
Blumhouse, whom I love. I love Blumhouse so much. They can do no wrong. Every movie, every show they make is unbelievably amazing. They want to pick up the Larry Ray story, and Mark Wahlberg wants to actually play Larry Ray. That's cool. I mean, yeah, that Mark would Wahlberg's be cool. interesting. I think it would be a good way, you know, to spread the message and maybe to help people that are kind of still stuck in his web of lies, I guess you could call it. Yeah. But I thought that would be, that was a thing that I wanted to add to the second part. And for all, all of those who donate on Patreon, we want to say thank you. We are actually, now that I've finished grad school, we are changing the way that we do our Patreon. So we want to give people who are nice enough to donate their hard earned money to us. We want to give them a little bit more. And now I can, cause I have more time. So all of our Patreons that donate one to two dollars will get one extra episode a month. And those who donate five and above will get two episodes a month. So that'd be four episodes a month for five and above and three for those of who, those of our Patreons who do one to two dollars. And of course, at every different tier, you get a little bit more and more. But that's just the general gist of the way we're changing things up. And those changes are going to begin on July 1st. So we just wanted to say that now that we have more time, we're definitely going to give more to our audience. And we're happy about that. Yeah, we are. And we love you guys, every single one of you. Um, I I just, I'm, I'm ecstatic. Yeah, it's fun to yeah. do all this I'm very happy. stuff. I'm very, very happy that we can um, provide you uh, true crime and we love doing this it's a passion of both of our both of us really yeah john wasn't so into true crime but now he's he's getting in there i really like it i really do <laughs> okay so what we want to do is we want to thank our patreons that have began donating to us in the last three months because we haven't done this in a while so our new patreons in the past three months are kiki fallon jenny cargill Rhonda simpkins amanda coldwell carissa snyder Becca Jennings, Levita Prankritz, Rosanna Keen, Lynn Priara, Kristen Smith, Denise Jean, Drama Llama Deva. So that was nice. That's yeah. a good name. Elisa, Jordan, Jackie Termal, Karen Washington, Trinity Walsh, Sabrina, Kate Cotton, Kotam. Kotam. I'm doing. If I do this wrong, I'm so sorry. It's okay, guys. Uh, guys, John I'm sorry. would do it worse. So. It would be worse if I did it. <laughs> Caitlin Aruska, Amber Louie Anderson, Zoe Marlena, Chris Presley, Angela Woodward, Wendy Franklin, Tracy Bronnell, Dana T- Dana Tully, Tracy L. Jones, Jose Tamatsu, Laura, Brittany Holman, Mildy, Lynn Mulkin. And Hulk Smashish. <laughs> I like that one. I like yeah. that last one. <laughs> Funny. All right, guys. We just want to thank you so much. And if you are interested, you can donate to us at patreon.com slash true crime couple. But if you want to help us in any other way, you could leave a review on any of the platforms that you listen to us at. And you could also check out our sponsors. That's always a huge help. All right, guys. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks.